Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, the clasp on America's Bible bra. You can find us online at www.doubtcast.org, or those of you in West Michigan can listen to us here on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM. You can also listen to the stream at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher. With me in the studio are my fellow doubtcasters, Jeremy Bean. Hello. And the doctor professor himself, Dr. Professor Luke Gatlin. It's gone too far, Dave, with the t-shirts. The the t-shirts, you mean the t-shirts? What You know what I mean. Available at zazzle.com slash doubtcast, where you can buy a t-shirt that that says, I think like Dr. Professor Luke. I'm even hesitant to buy one because I'm like, well, would that be self-serving? It's like, it's like buying a vel- it's like being a rock star and buying your own velvet poster. Right. It's just nobody really seems to get the joke, anyways. <laughs> People yeah. continually take it the wrong way. So I'm wondering, like, how much more mileage we're gonna get out of the whole. Oh, we'll milk, we'll milk it till it's dead. <sighs> All right. Uh, coming up on today's show, uh, we here like to take on controversial issues, especially those issues that are controversial within our own skeptical secular atheist movement. Uh, we've covered determinism versus free will. I don't I don't know if people have noticed that, but we talked about that on the show before. Yeah, I think it's been mentioned. And vegetarianism is another one that uh, uh, turned out to be quite controversial. Oh, they hated that. Yeah, they did. And now we're looking at uh, one of the most controversial, potentially non-controversies, accommodationism. To help us out, we've got an interview with Chris Mooney, author of Unscientific America, host of Point of Inquiry, but first off, we've got some sad news. I'm sure most of our listeners um, heard or read the news earlier this week that Christopher Hitchens, uh, author of God is Not Great, previous guest on the show, canceled uh, his book tour for Hitch 22 because he is going to begin uh, chemotherapy for esophageal cancer. Yes, yeah. that's correct. Yes. Um, very sad news. Uh, Christopher Hitchens is, of course, one of the strongest voices in the movement right now. He's one of the loud and proud new atheists. Most notably about about this, uh, very sad news that, that Christopher Hitchens is undergoing cancer treatment, although he is undergoing treatment. Yeah, we should say he's not dead yet. <laughs> no, 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 he's not. Um, uh, he's undergoing chemo, and I'm guessing he probably has the best doctors money can buy. Sure. So. This is, it uh, should be pointed out, a very serious um, diagnosis, though. Um, esophageal yes. cancer has, um, it, it is a rough one, to put it mildly. But uh, it, we certainly hope the best for him. Unfortunately, not everyone does. A lot of people are jumping on this as an opportunity to, um, well, to taunt Hitchens and, and the movement in general. Uh, yeah, George Birkin here says um, it would be a huge blow to Hitchens' ego, as it is to any ego, to admit that he's been wrong these many years. But Hitchens' rebellion against God has been so public that God may require a very public humbling. Um, 
I, this is this is just me editorializing here, but I don't think Hitchens got throat cancer because of his uh, rebellion against God. I think he got it because he smokes and drinks a whole lot. Yeah, I think that's that's a more plausible explanation of the mechanism there. Well, just like uh, God went after C.S. Lewis's wife and made her right. die a long and agonizing death. He's, yeah, he's funny that way. But uh, the Lord works in mysterious ways. Yeah, so there are plenty of folks who are calling for. Hitchens to repent now and save himself. And meanwhile, he's doing the thing that will potentially actually save him, which is getting medical treatment. So anyways, our thoughts are with Christopher Hitchens. We most certainly uh, hope everything goes well for him. And uh, yeah, but not our prayers. No. Moving on. Um, it's interesting that in the in the shadow of Christopher Hitchens, um, we talk about accommodationism. That's right. The Chronicle of Higher Education published an editorial called The New War Between Science and Religion by Mano Singham. In it, he claims there is a new war between science and religion. The new war pits those who argue that science and moderate forms of religion are compatible worldviews against those who think they are not. The former group, those who think science and religion are compatible, are known as accommodationists. He characterizes them as seeking out to carve out areas of knowledge that are off-limits to science, arguing that certain fundamental features of the world, such as the Heisenberg uncertainty principle and the origin of the universe, allow for God to act in ways that cannot be detected using the methods of science. Also, a notable quote from Francis Collins. Good old Francis Collins. Who, paraphrasing Collins, suggests that there are deeply mysterious spiritual domains of human experience, such as morality, mind, and consciousness, for which only religion can provide deep insights. Mm. Is that so, Mr. Collins? Is that so? Well, we could see, obviously, where atheists uh, might have a few things to say about those claims. But what I think is also interesting is that there are many people who are atheists who find themselves in the accommodationist camp. That in some way they do view religion and science as being compatible, at least in a certain sense. Now, the atheists who are arguing for accommodationism tend to have a slightly different focus, slightly different rationale than some of the religious people who are arguing for it. And we're not making the religious argument here. We're not dealing with that. We're we're strictly looking at the atheist approach to accommodationism. That's right. It's not that the religious arguments don't count. Nope. That they don't matter. Um, but we uh, we want to address this as a debate that is going on inside our own movement. Right. You will have people like P.Z. Myers, Jerry Coyne, Richard, Richard Dawkins. Dawkins, and others who fight very much against the accommodationists. They view it as a, sort of a cop-out, as being overly friendly to the other side, focusing Most on – Most of the time. Focusing on PR more than focusing on truth. Mm-hmm. You have others like David Sloan Wilson, Jonathan Haidt, and Chris Mooney, who we're going to be talking to today, who argue who argue for the accommodationist perspective. Mm-hmm. And so now we're going to bring on the show Chris Mooney to get a sense of his position, where he's coming from, and how maybe his attitude towards the issue may differ from some on the religious side. Chris Mooney is the author of The Republican War on Science – and most recently, the book Unscientific America. He is also the new host of Center for Inquiry's podcast, Point of Inquiry. Mm-hmm. 
Chris Mooney, thank you very much for joining us on Reasonable Doubts. Good to be with you. You've joined the ranks of some atheist authors such as David Sloan Wilson and others who are critical of the new atheists. In your most recent book, Unscientific America, you say, if the goal is to create an America more friendly towards science and reason, the combativeness of the new atheists is strongly counterproductive. It does nothing to promote scientific literacy. Rather, it sets the cause backward by exacerbating tensions between the scientific community and many American Christians. And for this, you've gained the label of being an accommodationalist. Uh, the accommodationist label is not one that I chose. It, I think, is meant to signal in some strange way uh, weakness. You know, we're not tough enough against the perceived enemy. Honestly, I think I think that toleration uh, leads to strength and comes from strength. So I, I consider to be called, you know, a recon- reconciler, reconciliationist, or just someone who is tolerant towards viewpoints other than mine. You know, I really appreciate you reading those sentences, which I hadn't read for a while. Uh, they strike me as, as quite quite moderate and actually uh, to represent a viewpoint that a lot of people are coming around for. I think sometimes your position has been misrepresented. Uh, for example, some have said you are advocating self-censorship for atheists who believe that religion and science are not compatible. And to me, I was amazed by that. I think that's so obvious so obvious that that's false that I didn't think initially I had to address it. I mean, the argument for the non-existence of God has been with our our world for a very, very long time. And they're not going away, and they shouldn't go away. They're a very important part of intellectual life and culture in the West and, and, and elsewhere. And it's important to know those, it's important to articulate those. I think that that's fine. I think it's fine to publish anything, and I wouldn't want to suppress anything. But what I am saying is that as defenders of science, people who care about reason, uh, it's incumbent upon us to think about how we're going about this task of spreading knowledge, spreading critical thinking, and whether it works. And my contention about the new atheism is that out of all the different ways in which they could be championing the cause of science, the cause of reason, the one way that they've chosen to do it is one that I don't think is going to work, except for an in-group, mm-hmm. a fairly narrow community of people who feel very, very vigorously the way they do. Now, another criticism against your, your position is that if you are saying that in any sort of way religion and science can be compatible, then this is somehow legitimizing faith as a, as a valid form of knowledge, that science and faith then must be just two different ways for searching out the same truths. Is it true that you believe that faith is a valid form of knowledge? No, I don't. Uh, there's several different points there, and there are some things I do believe, but First, no, I don't personally think that having faith tells you anything about the world. Now, I know that there's people who think otherwise. I don't get it. I'm an atheist. <laughs> I really would like evidence. I mean, to some extent, I realize that we do all act on you know, various kinds of non-religious faith at various times. We can't always have full evidence for the sort of things that we believe. But you know, in general, one should get evidence. One should not rely on faith. So I'm, in that, I'm the same as a, you know, a Sam Harris or something like that. Saying that faith is not a valid course to knowledge is a different question than asking about whether science and religion can be compatible. Because there, I think you've got, you know, science is one thing. Science is basically the best tool we have to figure out knowledge about the world. But religion is a vast, vast, vast number of things. And so religion can take a guise 
where it is clearly incompatible with science, or religion can take a guise where it's neutral or compatible, and it all depends upon the belief, the person, you know, expressing the belief and, or, the, or the religion. Some religions don't even have you know, a very strong supernatural belief, and there's a lot of scientists who do espouse some kind of religious belief who would swear to you uh, that it has nothing to do with their work. In fact, maybe it inspires their better work, but it certainly doesn't interfere with their work. And, you know, given the prominence of some of these people, I think we probably should listen to them about that because they are regarded as good science. You know, when I hear you say that, it, it makes this, this whole debate to begin with between accommodationalism and confrontationalism, it really blurs the lines because I can find your critics. I can find your critics such as Richard Dawkins, uh, Jerry Coyne, P.Z. Myers. I can find them saying the exact same thing. Here, here I have a quote. This is Dawkins saying, he's talking to Newsweek here, no, I don't think religion and science are incompatible, if only because there are many intelligent evolutionary scientists that also believe in God, to name only Francis Collins as one outstanding example. So it's clearly possible to be both. And I have Jerry Coyne here saying, so the most important conflict is not between religion and science, it's between religion and secular reason. Now, I am not claiming that all faith is incompatible with science and secular reason. Only those faiths whose claims about the nature of the universe flatly contradict scientific observation. Now, this is the same thing that you are saying here. And so this, this line... Bravo. <laughs> yeah. It sometimes makes me wonder what this debate is really about. Is it really about the compatibility of science and, and religion at all, or, or just the tone? It's about the tone. It's about um, the way in which dialogue is conducted. It's about, you know, in terms... In the, to the extent that people are upset with me, and I think that they are, it's because of the fact that I criticized them by name, the things that they did, mm -hmm. um, which, which I felt, you know, needed to be done. And frankly, I thought that they were proud of these things, uh, like P.D. Myers and the sort of famous communion wafer incident. Right. So I was proud of it, you know. Reading Unscientific American, you talk about several ways that religion and science can operate together. They can be compatible. And one of your arguments is that the historicity of this conflict thesis that we sometimes hear about is, is very much questioned nowadays by historians. Well, not so much that its historicity is questioned, but rather that it is shown to be a historical artifact of the Victorian era, which is when it originated. That if you go back further into the early days of the scientific revolution, all the best innovators were actually themselves religious. And in fact, you know, were inspired by their religion. Uh, in, a, in a sort of a natural theology worldview to figure out more about the way the world works because that was to the glory of God to understand um, not just the book of the Bible but the book of nature. There were thought to be two books and both were a path towards understanding divine. Uh, this is one of the ways uh, in which we now know from historians of science that the history that they study does not lead to any strong evidence of, of, of a sustained conflict or that conflict is the best way of describing the interactions between science and religion over time. So that's just to say that we have some myths among us about, you know, Galileo's persecution and so forth that aren't necessarily all that accurate, and we tend to misunderstand what the history of science was. Yeah, that's something we've uh, covered on this show several times before, in fact. You know, if, if you look at any of these uh, situations like Galileo, uh, if you look at them deeply, you realize that there were a lot of personal conflicts between the people involved. 
Galileo had a lot of support in certain theological circles. Kepler did too. He had the support of the Jesuits. Um, I, I've heard you talk about uh, Darwin, and Darwin had support from the Anglican Church. Well, in, certainly many, many, many Anglicans at the time were not anti-evolution, yeah. So, so it's always a deeper picture than just kind of the surface-level account of the whole conflict narrative. So another critique you have, and this one I'm a little more skeptical of, you talk about the distinction between methodological naturalism and metaphysical naturalism. I was wondering if you could explain the distinction and how it relates to this issue. Oh, geez. Let's hope that I can get this right, because I'm <laughs> probably a little bit rusty on this. I haven't gone over it in a while, but basically uh, I was using the work of Robert Pennock and Barbara Forrest, uh, and who basically has said that there's, there's philosophical naturalism, there's methodological naturalism. Methodological naturalism is the scientific process. And what that is, is as you're a scientist going about your work, you're assuming um, that nature is all there is, but you're not assuming that in an ontological you know, way, that nature is all there is. is. It's just nature is all that you can study as a scientist, because your methodology limits you to studying things that have natural causes. Because how else would you can create a controlled experiment if something wasn't going to play by the rules? You know, How would mm-hmm. you study a ghost when the ghost doesn't play by laws of nature, etc.? You just you wouldn't. Uh, it wouldn't be something that you could do in the methodological naturalism. The point, then, is that to go further and to assume philosophical naturalism is to say that, really, there are no ghosts. Um, and that's a, that's a stronger step. So what I was trying to say, based upon the work of these philosophers, was that science is really only methodologically naturalistic. And this was an important point, uh, if I recall, in the Dover Evolution trial as well. Mm-hmm. Science is only methodologically naturalistic, which means it doesn't commit itself to claims about the supernatural except to say it's agnostic on it can't know. It, it's tools, you know, it's, it's science of the telescope. These are not things that it can see. Um, and, but it cannot say they do not exist using that telescope, uh, using that methodology. It would have to make some sort of other philosophical argument to get at those additional points in. And that, you know, I think this is important because when you do have someone like Richard Dawkins in The God Delusion describing his critique of the existence of God as being scientific in nature, I say no. I agree with your argument. But I don't think they're science. I think they're, phil- they're philosophy. Pretty good philosophy for me. Works for me. But it's not science. I think you're right as far as we could never just go from empirical observation to discredit the supernatural. It's always possible that there's you know, a supernatural realm outside there that we cannot, we cannot possibly measure, quantify, whatever. And then that's off the table for science. However, uh, there are metaphysical beliefs that make claims on the natural world, and those can indeed be tested. So if we're arguing about intercessory prayer and that working, we can run an experiment on that. Yeah, some aspects of it you can. I mean, it depends on how you design your experiment, right? The divine force that was allegedly, you know, affecting the people prayed for versus not prayed for, I mean, I don't think you could measure it. (laughs) You could sort of measure the results. Uh, in the different groups, right? Right. Um, so, so yeah, I don't disagree with that uh, one bit. I, nor do I disagree with the idea that there are religions um, that uh, go beyond naturalism, go beyond science, and you know, make claims that science can refute. The creationists, yeah. Right. <laughs> one, one classic example where it's clear that they are going onto science to turf with bad information. 
Right, and in that case, it's it's fair game to to critique whatever conclusions they come to. So, oh hell yeah, the classic case of, of religion encroaching upon science. One critique I was thinking while reading your book, you've made the statement. Uh, I believe the central reason why we have such massive problems with the teaching of evolution to be precisely this. Millions of Americans believe incorrectly that they must give up their faith in order to learn about it, meaning science, or accept it. So the premise seems to be if we, if we convince the religious that science and religion are compatible or, or if we, we support that in some way, um, they're more likely to modify their theology to accommodate good science. But I was wondering if, if this is really true, because you also share in your book, here's a quote, you say, Despite the shrill battles between anti-science fundamentalists and the new atheists, most Americans seem to understand that religion and science are perfectly compatible. And you cite a study from the Center for American Progress uh, showing that 80% of people agreed that faith and science can and should coexist. But... Presumably, that 80% has a lot of overlap with the 55% that don't believe humans evolved from previous forms and the 60% that don't believe in the Big Bang. So it seems like there's already a high level of people who accept that science and religion are compatible, but they still believe in bad science. That's a great question. It requires me to, like, you know, I'm doing these percents in my head. <laughs> trying to figure out who, who we're left with here, who is actually thinking the way that we want them to think. Uh, I guess, you know, I think it's, it's a problem with polling. I mean, you know, people probably do say overwhelmingly they want science and religion to get along. If you just ask them that question, uh, even as they're probably believing positions that would make them not able to get along. That doesn't surprise me, really. Um, but uh, I don't think that it's undermines the broader point, um, which is that if you want to eat into the resistance to evolutionary science, I think that that remains the case. Uh, I think that the most effective way of doing that is to have pastors do it. Um, you have religious leaders telling churches, telling adherents, that, hey, you know, this thing, they scared you about evolution, you know, it's not so bad. We've actually found our theology has no problem with it, uh, and many other theologies have no problem with it. I think that that, you know, coming at it from, uh, from, from the standpoint of saying that religion can handle this just fine and religion isn't going anywhere, I think that's a stronger way of opening minds and reaching people. Yeah, I agree. And, 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 you know, especially with cases like Ken Miller, I think Ken Miller uh, is a wonderful advocate for evolution, critic of intelligent design, he's going to be able to change minds where, um, you know, people like us may may not have a chance. He's, he's just a glowing, wonderful guy in person, and honestly, I, the more I think about how you really persuade people, I, I think you do it interpersonally. You know, I think you do it by setting an example. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ideas are important, but also so is the person, how they behave morally, if someone you really like and care about, then they become more persuasive to you as well. So I'm just saying that, uh, that, that a guy like Ken Miller has a lot of things going. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Back to those figures that I just brought up, I could also see an argument for saying that if we, if we emphasize too much that religion and science are reconcilable, we won't be preparing people for some very, very disturbing facts that science has to say. I, I actually think it's rather easy for a Christian, uh, for example, to accommodate belief in evolution. I, I think there's other conclusions, maybe about free will, 
about the role of the self, or rather the, the material nature of the brain. Even questions about how effective uh, is religion at making people more moral. These are all potentially testable claims, and I think these could uh, they create the potential for conflict even within the most liberal and enlightened religious believers. My point is I don't think we want to sell the religious a false bill of goods about science either and say, hey, look, uh, you shouldn't have any problem with these conclusions at all. I know. I think that uh, religious believers are going to have to grapple with the findings of, say, modern neuroscience. Uh, those findings have got a long way to go before they really understand how the brain we are. Uh, so they're going to find all these sort of God-of-the-gap kinds of solutions. If you're not God of the gap, maybe just... Oh, they will. It's already happening. Yeah, but but they could also just say, you know, there, there are no gaps in the material, but there's a supernatural outside of it, and that's the goal, and you'll never detect it, and you'll never convince us it doesn't exist. Uh, and that's where free will comes from. And at that point, they would just be ceasing to be, be making scientific things at all. Uh, but de- definitely, it's going to be a problem area. Uh, I often wonder when this one is going to flare up and be sort of being a real public controversy. It hasn't yet. But I think you'll find that people manage, manage, and some of them in, you know, rational ways to keep their faith. I think you'll find that others might have to just sort of, like, say, no, we, we must not accept neuroscience. Um, but I, I hope that that's not the response. I hope that the response is more mature, as it has been on uh, at least some people's response to evolution. Yeah, I, I hope so, too. And, and, uh, and so this is one area where we're in absolute agreement. Setting aside the compatibility question... I can't see science making any kind of inroads or, or people like P.Z. Myers or Dawkins at all being uh, persuasive to the other side when so much of the tone of their discussion can get really nasty sometimes. So Dawkins talking dehumanizing terms like faith heads or talking about apologists who respond to his book as being fleas, P.Z. saying demented fucktards and words like that. It seems that the conversation has just gotten really, really nasty. The civility of our dialogue is a question that's completely outside of compatibility or incompatibility of science and religion. Mm, but it does speak to reason for me. Mm-hmm. I, I think that if you are a, a, an alleged champion of reason, of, of r- rational thinking, and you can't have a debate in a civil way that... Um, that doesn't draw out the passions, which are, of course, you know, inimical <laughs> to scientific reason, then uh, can you really be a practitioner of reason, you know? I mean, you're not setting up a rational dialogue. You don't seem to have that much respect for one. You're undermining it by your tone. Uh, you cannot pretend that tone is irrelevant. We are human beings, okay? Uh, and if you get our emotions fired up, we're not going to be reasonable. This is what has been known for a very long time in, say, the newspaper industry, which is why there's, you know, certain rules about decorum, certain rules about, you know, you can't just slander anybody without evidence, um, certain language you, you can't use. I mean, you know, and it's not that they couldn't just try to show off and say, ha-ha, I can actually use this word, but it's they know better. Um, they know it's not going to provoke a rational response. I think we've lost some of that on the Internet. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's a large part of the problem. Yeah, no, no doubt the uh, the anonymity of the Internet or the di- physical distancing from people 
has to be playing a cause. But what, what I think is so interesting is that this is, this is a scientific question. Some, uh, some like PZ, I, I know I keep on using PZ as an example, but he most readily comes to mind. They make it out to be, this is just people saying, oh, let's be nicey-nicey. This is just hand-holding sentiment. And it's not. PZ might be very familiar with biology, but he seems to be unaware of a lot of psychology. Cognitive dissonance studies show that when you attack somebody, they're going to become more entrenched in their viewpoint. Jeffrey Monroe, we're going to be talking about this later on the show today, but I think you'd be very interested in this. Jeffrey Monroe just wrote a piece for Science and Religion Today where he talks about people are more receptive to science that conflicts with their viewpoints if they affirm the person's worth or value before they go into it, if they refrain from snide comments uh, and rather stay humble. They can actually get people to change their minds more often. So this is a scientific fact that some atheists just seem willing to ignore. Yeah, I don't get it. I, I really don't get it. I mean, I think that uh, the field of psychology and, you know, to some extent political science, I think it shows very clearly that we are a kind of creature that likes to hold on to its beliefs and that when confronted directly in a sort of tense challenge towards those beliefs, does not respond rationally by considering um, the other side. No, we go, we, we, we struggle to prevent the information from getting to us. We don't allow it to upset our existing worldview. Factual corrections, <laughs> and they're not taken lightly. They make us actually become stronger in our misperceptions and data on this. So why, why do we not take into account all this great information about the nature of persuasion and the near impossibility of persuasion, although it's not impossible, but it's very difficult, when we're, when we're figuring out how we're going to talk to people who think differently. All right. Chris Mooney, thank you so much for taking out the time to be on Reasonable Doubts. And um, uh, can you tell our listeners where they can go read more of your work? Oh, sure. Uh, we're at blogs.discovermagazine.com slash intersection, and there's links to the books there, and the books are all on Amazon. Well, thank you very much again. Thanks for having me. All right, so that was our interview with Chris Mooney. I just wanted to say that uh, I actually approached this whole debate, the accommodationist versus, I guess you'd say, confrontationist Mm -hmm. debate, with a pretty fresh mind as far as I I didn't really find myself leaning too strongly towards one side or another. And I found that I think Chris Mooney, as I actually talked to him and read some of his stuff, I mean, I'm realizing that there's a lot of things we agree upon, right? So faith is not a valid route to truth. Right. Absolutely agree with him. Mm-hmm. We can't rule out the supernatural just because... Because it's inobservable? Right. And when religion makes claims on the natural world, then it is science's role to right. challenge those um, if there's no data for them. So in all those areas, I seem to be in agreement with Chris Mooney. Mm-hmm. At the same time, <laughs> I don't really feel like an accommodationist. Uh, you know, I would still have a hard time if you were to say which side are you on. I still don't feel like I fit entirely in in either camp. My thinking on this is, yes, when religion doesn't make a claim to the natural world, then it's perfectly compatible. You know, if they want to say that uh, this is true, but it has no effect on the natural world, okay. I got no problem with that. But that's not the way religion actually works. 
There's a quote from this article that that uh, we mentioned earlier, the war, the new war between science and religion, where the author says the only deity that science can say nothing about is a deity who does nothing at all. Yeah, I, I think that's more to where Coyne and PZ and others are coming from is that uh, they can admit that on some surface level, a religious person might accept scientific data. Like the same mind can right. hold both propositions. Which doesn't make them compatible. It just means that one person can hold two opposing viewpoints, which we know to be a fact. Or their compatibility at least is, is at, a, at a very superficial level. Um, when, when the exactly. rubber meets the road, anybody who's making significant religious claims that the majority of Americans accept or believe, it's going to include hypotheses that are testable. Right. I, I think the real debate here is, is about uh, language and about PR and how we talk to people on the other side of the issue. I think that's where the the real difference is. You have Hitchens, you have Dawkins, you have PZ who are confrontational, uh, willing to mock and ridicule religion, whereas other people maybe not quite so aggressive. I think that's where the real debate is. I, I agree with you, Dave, as far as like my own view. For me, that's where the debate yeah, okay. is. I'm not sure everybody else sees it that way as that being the most important thing. But Right. I go back and forth because uh, on this as well, so I'm also in the middle. When I analyze why I go back and forth, it's because uh, I'm shifting back and forth between two different or more than one question. And the one, the question of the, uh, of, the is this tactic likely to be useful to us? Like mm -hmm. a tactical question. Do we alienate uh, Christians or liberal Christians or people who could be our allies by being nasty? I think the evidence is yes. Right. And that you're not going to convince anybody by being nasty. And so that's one question. Uh, you know, is it good to be accommodationist when it comes to a tactical persuading people to be have common cause with you? Then yes, it's good. But is that always the goal? So let's just shift topics. Let's say it was. Uh, let's say it's back in the '60s and it's a civil rights issue. And let's say that there are racist Southerners who don't want to vote for a civil rights bill. Right. Should you, in order to get the votes of these senators, should you be nice to them and placate them, even if that means that you don't call them racist? Even though you'd be correct in calling them racist, now mm -hmm. I would think that some that I would be ambivalent about that too. I need this 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 guy's vote, but on the other hand, if somebody asked me is what he's doing wrong and is it racist, I'd say yes. So those are two different issues. Is it proper to mock people who are racist? Yes. So if you substitute back the creationism again, I would say is it is it okay to mock people's views who are, that are patently false and incorrect? I would say yes. Is it likely to alienate those people if you do that? Yes. So they're right. contradictory because it's two different questions. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes I'm in mocking mode. Sometimes I'm in I need this person's help mode. I'm sure everybody has been in the position of, of having to tone down what they really think about somebody in order to get their help or in order to, you know, to work alongside them even though they have to grit their teeth. And that's the issue I think here. Which is I think a, a nice summary of our show here. Um, I've been listening through the archives a lot, putting together best of episodes, and there's a lot of what I would call accommodationist positions, and there's a lot of ridicule of the ridiculous. I was just trying to think like how how accommodationist are we in, in past episodes? I mean, I, I I don't know. I was thinking of like our interview with Brian McLaren uh, sure. not too long ago. I mean, we were civil towards him. Uh, we let him hear out his position. We affirmed that that's a much better view of Christianity than that of the fundamentalists, and we would like to see that catch on amongst more Christians. 
at the at the same time though i don't feel like we were accommodating him in the, in the sense that i didn't accept his theology or right. or his way of interpreting and, the bible nor uh, saying that's a found... valid way to understand the and, and right, that, that's right. not what i'm saying right. in our tone um we're not aggressively nasty to people we're not name calling Sometimes religious people. Sure, sometimes we are nasty, and sometimes I think that's that's justified. Usually, when we're nasty, I mean, I don't. We don't always follow this, of course. But usually, when we're nasty, it's targeted at one specific person. I think the most amount of um, attack that goes on is like during the shit list segments, right? Where there's some demagogue or a hypocrite. When it's when it's clearly a moral issue, I think that tends to be when we do more of the the attack style. Yeah, so so I guess what I'm saying is uh, compared to some of the other voices out there from our movement, we are a much friendlier one than a lot of the other well, the take attacks like, go. Take like the friendly atheist guy. He labels himself as friendly atheist. Yeah. Um, and, but he, and he goes to visit forums where he's like churches and things like that Absolutely. or he sold his soul on eBay and everything like that. But he's in those forums as a contrarian. He's labeled as such. Absolutely. As he doesn't say I am making common cause with these people necessarily always. But that he is saying, uh, I'm the guy who I'm going to represent uh, atheists in that forum. Now, it's one thing to do that, but it's another thing to, for example, join up and have your name on a list of people like Templeton or something mm-hmm. like that to say, uh, I'm with where, you know, we're all going to sing We Are the World together. And, and you know, th- that's a different thing. I guess for the most part, we tend to agree with Chris Mooney, at least on the point of, of the, the tone of this dialogue. If the goal is not to score points, if the goal is to actually persuade people. Although sometimes the goal is just to score points. Yes, yeah. but I think we would say a morally superior Ultimately, goal yes. would yeah. be to, to actually win minds right. rather than just make people look stupid or yes. feel stupid. Then tone really does matter. Psychology has some things to say about how we should best go about trying to persuade people to really any position, but even more specifically to a scientific position that they may otherwise feel threatened by or may conflict with their worldview. And this will be the subject of this week's God Thinks Like You. It's an empirical issue, like you said. What is likely to be persuasive or off-putting or not is a testable mm-hmm. question. And so uh, there are people right now you know, researching how you package factual issues and seeing if that affects the rate at which people believe or disbelieve them or deny them. Uh, and so well, one of the um, examples of this, there's a researcher whose name is uh, Jeffrey Monroe from Towson University who has done some studies on uh, people's willingness to agree with belief consistent information as opposed to information that's inconsistent with beliefs as a function of things like how the information is presented to them. Uh, So he had a piece on science and religion today where he folded this into the debate about, you know, do you alienate people by using sort of blunt language that offends Mm -hmm. them, you know. Uh, And the, the theory behind this is that people don't, as most people probably realize, uh, they don't simply make up their mind on the basis of factual, cognitive, cold-type calculations. If they did, we don't be atheists. This is one aspect that frustrates us is that when we're debating with somebody, it quickly becomes apparent that the facts of evolution in some cases won't make a difference if the person has an emotional investment. See, but you're, you're already using charged language by calling it facts. 
I made. I'll make air quotes to blunt the <laughs> rudeness of my factual language. So uh, you know, people hold attitudes because they are linked to aspects of your self-identity. I've made that point Absolutely. before when I discuss things like terror management. That if you have an, a worldview that can be threatened, you get defensive. You circle your wagons if it's attacked. In the same way. With factual issues like the scientific type things we talk about, religious people hold these as part of their broader self-identity. Right. So if you're saying I'm a creationist, you're not just saying I favor the arguments for creation. You're saying I, as a person, my identity is as a creationist. So if you're attacking creationist claims, you're attacking, um, me. You're attacking that person mm-hmm. as well, their self-identity. So how do you challenge the beliefs but don't threaten them on a personal level? Yeah, so this Jeffrey Monroe did a study that I think is very sobering because what he found was is that uh, his particular study was on uh, uses stimuli that had to do with things like uh, homosexuality and mental illness. So he had subjects like Reed. Aren't they the same thing? Exactly. So he had yeah. people who had that view versus the view that there's no connection, and then he presented right. them both with statements that confirmed or disconfirmed that. And what he found was that was disturbing was people whose views were challenged by this evidence, so belief disconfirming information. If Mm -hmm. I thought that uh, homosexuals have higher rates of mental illness and I read a scientific article that said the opposite, those people tended to devalue science itself. That is the ability, they rated lower the ability of science to answer questions Mm. like that. Even beyond that, did that generalize to other issues other than the one that was challenged? So Uh, it wasn't even just this is a bad study or I I disagree with their conclusions, that science itself cannot answer a question like this. They become almost postmodernist that they would say, well, you can have your science, but that doesn't answer these questions. I actually see that a lot at, uh, you know, at, at my university where people usually reserve, I guess the two areas that they usually reserve for science can't touch this is religion and things like love or, you know, sexuality, Mm. Uh, and that they say, yes, yes, you can have your data, but uh, these things are immune to, they could say, faith or, you know, the wonders of emotions, but science can't address that. It it seems also, too, that a lot of pseudosciences tend to cluster together. I mean, you're going to hear on a a Christian radio network, typically, obviously creationist stuff, but climate denialism comes Mm. in there. A lot of times there's a lot of pseudosciencey herbal remedies and stuff that you'll hear late night on the the Christian talk shows. It it does seem to be that, you know, once you distrust one area of science, it's not all that hard to start being more skeptical of others as well. It spreads. And and so what Monroe's work is suggesting is the reason that that happens is, is because the person, again, has some sort of cognitive dissonance. My view is disconfirmed by this, or apparently disconfirmed by this study, so therefore this study cannot be valid, and studies in general probably aren't valid. So they bring out things like, you know, even scientists disagree or facts can be twisted. And so um, what Monroe's broader point, though, was to to the debate of how information is presented is, is that often you can change that or you can blunt that response by packaging the information in a less threatening way. That is, if somebody's emotional factors are involved in this, if they're uh, hurt or if their worldview is challenged, if you will present the information in a way that allows them to maintain part of their worldview, they're less likely to have that compensatory defensive response. So we should be accommodating. Well, his argument is that you could use language that's relatively more accommodating, like instead of saying we argue, that you instead frame it as here's what the data says, or that you allow them to affirm part of their identity in another area. So the the way that some of these studies work is, let's say you're studying like group 
boundaries like nationalism or patriotism. Mm -hmm. If you present the information like write an essay on the things that are good about America and then present them with information that might be challenging like you know slavery or something like that, then the person is more likely to accept that information because they've had the chance to affirm their broader values in a different context. Mm. I, I really thought that was an insightful observation of his uh, that, that comes out of the data. If I'm somewhere talking to a Christian face-to-face and we're getting into some sort of theological debate, as often happens, I often get to meet seminary students on their way out and I'm their their atheist project that they have to work on <laughs> before they can. Really? Are you on some sort of list for that? Yes, yeah, That's it happens awesome. all the time really? here with the since the Free Thought Association, they have to, you know, go through their trial type of thing. <laughs> and, it's the gauntlet. Right. Like those padded guys in the self-defense classes. <laughs> but I found myself instinctively, but then later deliberately Using a lot of moral, morally loaded terms oh, sure. when talking to them. Um, I think and, it's and one of the say, best things we can do. Saying things like, you know, instead of just saying like you're wrong on this position, that's not the that's not the most valid argument. You say things like, well, I know you believe in integrity. I know that you believe in worshiping God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And I think I think integrity requires us to use the same standards to judge our own arguments that we would others. Now, what that's doing is I'm still making a critique of their position, but I'm affirming some part of their moral identity. Mm -hmm. I'm not attacking them. You're a bad, ignorant person. I'm saying you're a person who wants to live a life of integrity. Here's an option. Here's an opportunity to be – to have more intellectual integrity. Yeah, if you frame it – the evidence suggests that if you frame a response within the person's own worldview as much as possible, that it's less likely to be – alien to them and they can just dismiss it. So we've talked on this show, for example, about like the environmental movement becoming more, you know, uh, Christianized or rather that the Christian left movement has – that if you package things in terms of – of terminology like creation care or you know Stewards. Glo- global warming, mm-hmm. yeah, stewardship. That that the persons are more likely to receive that rather than deny that. So the point of some of these these things is that when you when you frame an issue that's le- less likely to be threatening, or like I said, like if you affer- allow the person to affirm other things, like religion is really great for you. It sounds like it's done great things, but here's you know then that makes the person less likely to to have a defensive response where they just say no, no, no. I'm not going to listen. Right. And so the question is, I guess, do can we do this in a way that preserves our intellectual integrity? I mean, do we have to lie to them and coddle them and say, "Oh, this is really great" when we don't think it is? Uh, or can we can we can we do this? Can we frame things and still preserve our own our own beliefs? You know, except with maybe the most abject fundamentalist who it's not worth getting into conversations a lot of times oh, anyway. Oh, but they're so much fun to debate. Uh, except in that case, if if they if they really do seem to value the argument, really do seem to be engaged in this, I think uh, a lot of times you 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 can. Well, I see this as a series though of concentric circles. Let's just say that your first issue is arguing evolution. Right. Okay. Then you would want somebody like Ken Miller to say, "I'm a Christian and I can believe in evolution. It's too whatever like that." But for many uh, of people similar to us, the evolution thing is inextricable from a broader issue of. God itself or an act of God like you mentioned before. And so we don't uh, – if somebody would come to us and say, look, here's evidence that uh, that you shouldn't adopt evolution and atheism go hand in hand if you want to 
this creationist to come over to your evolution side. As in the back of my head, I'm saying, but it's not. I don't just want to win an evolution debate. I want to win a religious debate, mm-hmm. and that there I see evidence or lack of evidence for God in evolution. And so I don't want to. You know, I think that's the impulse of many atheists is that to them, learning about evolution things like that came hand in hand with their religious views. Right. Or lack of religious views. And so if someone would say, look, just win this little battle, win this skirmish on evolution, win yeah. over the creationists, that's good. In the back of my mind, I'm saying, but I don't want it to stop there. Right. And so I don't want to just have um, – You don't want to be the accommodation. To win by letting them affirm their religiosity to me would be just a skirmish. Yeah. I, I think a real lesson that follows from science is how effective naturalistic explanations for the world are. And that we shouldn't just speculate. Knowledge should be based on data. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I feel the same way. If, if I'm just saying, well, you can still fit in your, your religious worldview and adopt science, I'm not getting that, that deeper epistemological point across and you're that kind I think of is lying. important. Im- yeah. important. Yeah. Yeah, because if I'm talking – Well, I don't think I'm necessarily <laughs> lying because I do think they could adopt a whole lot of science. Uh, but I'm not comfortable then when they start right. peppering in their, their metaphysical propositions into the gap. I guess that's, that would be the sense where I would be lying. Yeah. If I said I was fully comfortable with that, uh, and, I would be going against my own uh, theory of truth, I guess you right. could say. And that's the thing because I, I'll go on record here. I do not think that science and religion are compatible at all. And I don't buy the non-overlapping magisteria either. I, I, I think – Religion makes claims about the physical world that can be empirically disproved or you have religion that makes no claims about the the physical world and what's the point? I mean I, I guess you can have that religion. I don't see what it offers. So any time that we let that uh, – leave that as an option – it's very frustrating, like you're saying, Luke, because I, I want to, you know, you want to close the deal. Yeah, would, you, would you feel content sitting with somebody that, that now they're evolutionists just like you sure. and that they agree with that knowing that they think that there's a God who, you know, extinguished 99% of species that allows horrible diseases? Right. In the back of my mind, I'm already going to the next point yeah. of the person. Of, if they say, oh, well, that makes sense. I can believe in evolution and still be a Christian. And then I'm back with, do you really think that this is the God tinkers like this? You know, it, it's to me, it's, it's, it's a continuum. I would concede the evidence shows that tactically we're more likely to be successful if we if we are nice and frame things in terms of the person's own worldview. I can't contest that. And take that. it a step at a time. But I'm still like, well, I'd, there's a broader battle here. Yeah, very frustrating. I think also, too, this debate seems to be framed towards the, the moderate liberal Christian who really does, you know, really have worked hard to adapt yes. and accommodate their own religion to scientific propositions. And we love um, those Christians. Those are the Christians we want voting with us. Right, right, you, you right. Know? But what I was thinking is I can see the risks of drawing a line in the sand and saying never shall the two be compatible. Uh, right. But but what are the risks of overemphasizing that they are compatible? The, the the like highly educated Cambridge theologians who are adapting their theology to religion they're not the only people out there right. um, think of think of the new age movement think of people like Deepak Chopra think of what was it the integral science we were talking mm-hmm. about uh, that guy out in Colorado um, 
in Boulder, Colorado, his Integral Institute. He's jumping straight from developmental psychology to Eastern mysticism. All these people don't need to be convinced that science and religion are compatible. They're already sure. convinced. But they're not respecting these boundaries that Mooney and the National Academy of Sciences and everybody else thinks just should be should be the case. They they feel free to pepper their science with metaphysical propositions and, and it distorts what science is really saying and what you can take away from it for a whole lot of people. Uh, if we think if the monotheistic religions vanished, you know, that would be the end of it. But look at look at Europe. In Europe, you're going to find a lot of people who would agree that science and religion are compatible, but you're, and you're going to find a lot less more conservative Christian believers. Mm -hmm. You're going to find New Age going through the roof too. You're going to find right. complementary medicine and pseudoscience Spiritual beliefs people. everywhere. So science should be confronting people's worldviews. Um, we just have to figure out how to confront it without being off-putting. Yeah, that's why I think you know in psychology, the stuff that I do is is much more is broader than even belief in evolution or global warming. It's things sure. like belief in intentionality, yeah. belief in teleology, right. that things have you know that those things are psychologically derived. And so that's why I meant earlier when I said that you know this this or that factual issue seems kind of a hollow victory to me. Yeah. Back to your point, Luke, though, I, I mean, I, I entirely agree. I don't want the debate just to stop at metaphysics. We should be making claims about religion and, and things as well. But even admitting that there's room for challenge, it doesn't mean we have to be a complete asshole about it. Even at our most critical, I don't see why we need to call call some of these people demented fucktards. You Can know, we say that? Can we say or that? Or I'll bleep it out for the radio. Or use dehumanizing language to characterize people as faith heads, as, as other. I mean, I think you can be very confrontational <laughs> on the basis of the evidence and, well, and leave, some of, leave some of that stuff out of it. As soon as you've, as, as you've left behind your goal as convincing people or trying to get them onto your camp, is it – I guess that leads to a broader question. Is it ever appropriate to ridicule people in a public context? If they do something absurd, can we ever make fun of them and call them out for, for uh, in language like that in any context? I would say again, there's there's ridicule, there's satire, and then there's viciousness. Right. I don't know. I think some things deserve viciousness. Yeah, and I think a lot of things deserve satire. Well, like the example I gave before about like you know if it was a racist, would you call them out? Or if it was somebody who was like you know stony women, would you call them out on that? It, it, a lot of it be, comes down to utilitarian arguments too. You know, do we need to get this legislation? Well, I see passed? somebody who's stoning women, but that's. Well, I mean, a, a lot of times the name calling is is aimed much much broader. Well, let's say if uh, the, the faith heads faith heads refers to anyone who, who is a person of faith. If you let's say that Jerry Falwell saying that the earthquake on Haiti was their own fault. Would that be yeah. okay? So, yeah. so if, if PZ, uh, I could see his attitude is often acerbic. What if he views those people as being essentially running cover for that type of thing? That is uh, an intentional God. He yep. equates having a belief in an intentional God who does everything for a reason as justifying blaming victims for if, things like If that. you reserve it for the, for the absolute worst cases and where it's clearly derived from a theological belief, then I, I think that's a, a different case. For example, to use a counterpoint, the head of the CFI Amherst group, Michael Deodora, made some real simple comment about an evolution textbook that oh, was yeah. calling, that was calling uh, the, the Bible just a myth 
and I actually didn't agree with Michael Dedor on this, but he still made a level-headed, reasoned case that that the science textbooks should just entirely stay out of they, anything biblical or mythological and should just just stick to the science. Even, even though the book is right, they should. There's no reason to address it. You know, they don't mention in there. By the way, you know, Hesiod's. Yeah. Works in days is just a myth. Now, PZ yeah. went on a tirade, yeah. saying, that, calling this person all sorts of things, saying, "What business does he have working for any of our groups?" Then Massimo uh, Piccolucci, uh, if that's how you say his name, a few others whose names are blanking me in our movement said, "You know, it's it's not necessarily nice to try to discredit somebody's entire reputation and claim they have no integrity just because you disagree with them yeah. on a minor point." Yeah. And then PZ really let the floodgates open. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it 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 was it was breathtaking the amount of personal ad hominem attacks that were going on against this guy because they differed on a tiny, tiny, minor point. And we like PZ too. I like PZ some of the times. Yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed true. when he came on our show, and I think he had some great advice, including working with religious people, <laughs> right. like on on Americans United and other I, things I where we had common funny. cause. Yeah. We can say, yes, sometimes ridicule is appropriate, but that doesn't give people a blank check to just say whatever they want with reckless abandon to any moral standards. Yeah, I I would agree with that. You idiot. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know many of our listeners who who heard the Chris Mooney interview are are yelling at their iPod saying, why didn't we talk to him about Templeton? Jeremy, why didn't we talk to him about Templeton Foundation? We did, but I thought we should talk about Templeton first. Oh, well. There's no organization in the world today that is advancing the notion that religion and science are compatible more than the Templeton Foundation. So that's why they are relevant to this discussion. Mm-hmm. It was set up by John Templeton. According to an article written in The Nation called God, Science, and Philanthropy by Nathan Schreider, the Templeton's assets are valued at around $1 billion. Is that it? Yeah, likely uh-huh. to swell to $2.5 billion, the article says, in the years to come. Wow. It's one of the richest 25 foundations in the entire country, and it dispenses around $70 million in grants annually. The bulk of that money goes to programs that try to advance the notion that science and religion are compatible Absolutely. or advance dialogue between scientists and theologians and that sort of thing. And I think thing. that is, a, is an important distinction is that they're, they're uh, at least a lot of the time what they're really pushing is just the dialogue, is the conversation. They're not saying write an article that says science and religion are compatible. They are bringing together scientists to, to discuss I looked this. at a number of the groups that they are funding uh, or at least – or their funding was instrumental to even founding these groups. So mm-hmm. Foundational Questions Institute, the George Washington Institute for Spirituality and Health, Duke Center for Spirituality, Theology and Health. I looked these guys up on the internet. I looked at their research programs, uh, what they're awarding grants and stuff to. A lot of them seemed – Conservative, conservative in the sense that they're not like they're not going too far with it. They're, they're fairly innocuous. They're, yeah, yeah. It's a, a lot of it's just like uh, how how do medical practitioners how might they best be aware of the spirituality of their patient? Sure. Uh, and you know not 
step over that, maybe work with them, which, training for chaplains, that sort of thing. Which is probably – Or a lot thing. of it is entirely legitimate uh, research into psychology of religion, the type of stuff that, that Luke does. Uh, some, well, some of these programs. Le- legitimate? Some of it. Some of it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to – yeah. I don't uh, – OK. Finish what you're saying. I'll attack it later. In the sense of they're, they're studying do religious beliefs or attitudes make people healthy, happy, that sort of thing. There's a thing in psychology though that's um, called the file drawer effect that when you don't find an effect, you tend to file it in a drawer and the disconfirming reports never make it out and therefore what you see published or what the studies that make it out are confirmatory reports but in a mixed – let's say like medication that you're studying placebos versus meds, that the, the findings that don't show an effect – of the medication just don't aren't out there, so it overinflates the appearance of an effect. Okay. I, I, well, I, I don't want to draw a strict equivalence between what you're doing and what they're doing, but what I'm saying is the questions themselves aren't off the table uh, from from a scientific perspective. I, I would it's argue that perfectly the, legitimate the, to study some of these things. Yes, although I would argue that the appearance, uh, if you look at all their funding, I think it is relevant to like the, all the groups, the, the conservative groups, and this stuff. And and what Dave said about well, at least some of this is just funding just a dialogue. I would say that that. Is they must. They're smart in that they know that if even if you just say, "Hey, look, it's just a dialogue." Here, this person said no, and this person said yes. That even that functions to erode. It's well, a, it's a little bit no like answer. let's teach the debate. The is when you read the thing, does anybody seriously think that if they found a no answer, they would say, "Okay, well, no." Sure. They would okay. stop. Yeah, they no. would not stop. I, right. I retract my my earlier statement. I, you're right. Good point. Well, I I don't entirely retract, but that's where I was going with this, anyways. Sure. Uh, uh, what I was okay. trying to say is that I looked at several of these, and really their research programs don't seem to be full of complete out there bullshit. However, the next thing I was going to say, I should have just not drawn that equivalence between you and their research. That, that set me off. Um, the next thing I was going to say is it is sometimes frightening the way once they do support some particular area of research, it can go from obscurity to being a major, major well, – a billion dollars behind it, yeah. For example, they talk about Margaret Paloma. She wanted to study the science of godly love. <laughs> that sounds um, so dirty. And uh, she obviously – nobody was granting her any kind of money or anything else like that. They had Athena Butler of, of – a historian at University of Pennsylvania <laughs> says that Good name. when Paloma first started first started seeking funding for her flame of love studies, <laughs> um, she said nobody in the field could figure out what the hell she was talking about. <laughs> I love that. Um, but then she got funded by uh, Templeton and another group that was started with Templeton money uh, by Stephen Post, a group called Research, the Institute for Research on Unlimited Love. Which sounds like a lot of fun. Butler says she went from being – after this, she went from being an outsider to someone with tons of money who yeah. can set the terms of the discussion. Yeah. That's a type of power You're right. that is very my, frightening. My other main objection to this is just merely the presence of money, even if they didn't – Oh, throw sure. it around in some shady way. The presence of money distorts and corrupts the scientific process. And I have a history of this issue because when back when I was doing psychology, in a, I was in a department of psychiatry. 
And I don't know if you guys have ever seen this, but psychiatry, you know, being medical doctors, they just get thrown tons of money from the drug industry. Sure. So I, I, I had the opportunity, if you compare things like psychology journals and psychiatry journals, they're just not even close. The psychology ones are kind of like on this cheap paper, and it's all science articles. The psychiatry right. one is sponsored by Eli Lilly and and Pfizer and all this stuff in it. Right. And here's some pens, and here's a pad, and here's a clock. Let's take you on a junket. Go golfing. Yeah. Uh, it just And so they – and they uh, look, we have a study. We're just trying to say that this drug works. I would argue that even just the presence of money thrown at something distorts mm. the emphasis – even if people's intentions are good and that, like you said, even things that are like dumbass ideas can get amplified if someone's willing to back them up with bucks. Right. And so my position, a lot of this stuff is science. The only way for science to remain truly a level playing field where the best ideas flow to the top is not to fudge the results by putting your finger on the scale with a stack of money. In There's a perfect world, sure. Well, but. maybe that's idealistic. But yeah, I mean, I think every time that somebody says, you know, I'm willing to take money – we all reassure ourselves and say, but it's not going to bias my outcome. I'd say that, that it's already biased. Yeah. Once somebody says, Seriously? we'll fund this type of study, it's already biased. Oh, boy. Do I want to go here? Boy. Uh, so what about your non-religious identification survey? CFI fronted some cash for that and resources, too. I didn't get any. What, what cash did I see other than they took – then I went out there for the conference and back? Well, I, I don't I, I, dis- for the, I don't disagree with what you're saying, but people on, do need no, to get being, money from somewhere. No, throw it out. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, the, the website right? that was on the and Survey Monkey, it doesn't, I paid two hundred dollars on my own pocket for that. <laughs> I didn't even ask my department for money. Right. For what that. I'm saying is, money can. I'm, I'm not going to disagree with you here as far as money don't can bias things, but I don't think I don't think being the recipient of money automatically impeaches your results I, or, or necessarily. I, no, I, I agree. If it's a neutral end, let's say the government grant, let's say the National Institutes of Health says. We're, we're going to throw open some – here's some money to study cancer or something like that. No, that's not going to uh, fudge things at all. Yeah, if it's coming from Philip Morris or the tobacco companies, but, but it the might. Pro- the so, process yeah, is no, that, that, that when you apply for grants and things like that, that there's a committee of peers that decides which proposals are worthy or not. Right. Right. Okay, right. so you, you, and then you can argue and yes if, that and if they all depends on where they're getting their money. And if they all have the same agenda, then then it becomes more of an issue. But yeah. hopefully, the the whole point of peer review is to have that diversity it's so like, the like criticism politics. can come. Yeah, out. you can never truly remove money from any of Absolutely. these processes. Right. But you can. That doesn't mean that you just throw up your hands and say, "Well, let's just right. let then the, let's just yeah open I'll, the spigot." I'll take my like paycheck whoever. from Pfizer. I, I entirely agree. Yeah, I I think the Templeton Foundation is is scary for that reason. Even if some of what they're doing does seem pretty legitimate or at least not over the top uh, in the wrong direction, what really terrifies me from this article from The Nation is looking at their ties to right-wing organizations. Yeah. Was that a surprise? Yeah, like the, you know, the, the Heritage Foundation is antithetical to accurate science. If you go to their website, Absolutely. they have a bunch of junk science on homosexuality mm-hmm. or families and things like that. So. Yeah, you could you could argue there that even if some yeah. Templeton money isn't tainted, the fact that they fund those other things, those are anti-science. Templeton yeah. gave True. gave a million dollars to the Heritage Foundation between 2005 and 2008. Uh, it gave two hundred thousand dollars to the Cato Institute at the same time, um, the Atlas Economic Research Foundation, the Acton Institute. We've dealt with them uh-huh. before. And when you look at Jack Templeton, who is now becoming, uh, this is John Templeton's son. John Jr., yep. John he died Templeton's at 92 son. years old in yeah. 2008, which means his son might be around for a while. 
Jack funds the Let Freedom Ring, the, the, the which fronts the Tea Party movement. Mm. Um, uh, Jack gave all sorts of money to Swift Boat Veterans for Truth. Yeah, right. They're, they're, right. That's not a politically biased uh, group. Freedom Watch, the neoconservative group, mm-hmm. uh, they gave over a million dollars to support California's Proposition 8. Now, right now, Templeton's affiliations with different universities, uh, different academies of science, they are partnered up with some people who have pretty good reputations. Um, what happens when they really start channeling some of this money you know, into more and more right-wing causes? I mean, I, th- I think we're going to see them supporting a lot more pseudoscience, or at least it's plausible that it could happen. Especially when they're that they go from $1 billion to $2.5 billion as, as is likely to happen. They're letting their freedom ring. Yeah. Project Reason hired a journalist, Sonny Baines, to investigate Templeton. And supposedly the book hasn't been released yet, uh, so I guess we can't really read it and see what's in it. But the article reports that they uncovered evidence of a lot of cronyism in regards to the Templeton Prize. The Templeton Prize is the big cash giveaway they give each year. Is it each year? I don't know. Uh, I'm I, not sure, I but every so often they give out the Templeton Prize, uh, which is intentionally billed as a bigger prize than the Nobel Prize mm-hmm. as far as money is concerned. And it goes to some legitimate good scientists, but they've also given it to Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, Chuck Colson, the guy from Watergate. Uh, no, the, the difference is the right. Nobel Academy doesn't screen you out to make sure you're friendly to the Nobel exactly. Academy before they give yeah. you the prize. Yeah, yeah exactly. They, they, they claim they have evidence that a lot of these people who won the prize were formally connected to the board in some sort of way of or mm. the foundation. So there's there's kickbacks going on here. To sum up, the Templeton Foundation may be supporting some really good research, but they also have their hands in a lot of stuff that isn't. And their all, overall agenda is promoting a certain worldview uh, in regards to science and religion. And our guest, Chris Mooney, Took some money from them. Yeah. He's not the only one. No. Um, uh, Daniel Dennett did it before, correct? I think he bailed out of that. I think uh, Richard Dawkins attended some of their seminars. We're not talking millions of dollars. No, 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 no. Jonathan Haidt, David Sloan Wilson, uh, all of these guys uh, have – a pretty impressive group, really. Taken, yeah, Templeton funds. There's debates going back and forth. Does it does it mean you've been bought out by Templeton uh, if you've accepted their funds? And so Chris Mooney now has to answer this question too. So I did ask him during the interview. I didn't really press it, but I did ask him, and here's the result. You are now a fellow, a research fellow with the Templeton Institute. Is that correct? A slightly different title for two months, June and July 2010. I am a Templeton Cambridge Fellow in Science and Religion. Templeton Cambridge Journalism Fellow in Science and Religion. It's one particular Templeton program <laughs> that is affiliated with the University of Cambridge. I guess it's safe to assume that you've gotten a lot of flack for that. Oh, sure. I mean, the Templeton Foundation generally gets a lot of flack all the time. And one thing that the Templeton Foundation's critics have come up with that is particularly ingenious not. <laughs> it is it's attacking our program, because our program is the program of journalists. People have real influence in the media, and so they make, I guess they make an annual ritual of saying, you know, how dare you journalists go to Cambridge and study, you know, scholarship on science and religion. Um, you know, basically, you're being bought off. And here you have all these people in the media who think, oh, the new atheists are the people who smeared me. How do you respond to, I mean, does does that buy, buy you off? Look, everybody needs money to do a job. Right. If money creates 
and this, this is the whole definition of a fellowship. You get paid to do a fellowship because otherwise you're not going to do the fellowship. Because fellowships give you time out from your work, your normal work, the normal grind, the normal you know, paper chase, so that you get a little freedom. And then you get to think. Then you get to research something that you might not have done otherwise. If you set up a fellowship where people don't get paid, you're not <laughs> going to have anybody applying for the fellowship. Um, doesn't mean that the fellowship, when you then produce the results, the fellowship controls what you say, which it doesn't. Uh, and it does seem to you that, that a lot of the results that Templeton is putting out don't seem to, they don't always walk the, the foundation's line or, or come to the conclusions that they might want to see. Yeah, I mean, what conclusions are we talking about here? I mean, most of the, um, the work that my colleague in the Templeton um, journalism program, the Cambridge Journalism Program, are going to be doing, and are not even going to be directly on the topic, as I as I accept it, of you know, are science and religion compatible in some broad sense, and they're not going to be about you know, is the new atheism good or bad? I mean, there might be one or two people that get interested in that and write that, but most of us are, are writing. There's many aspects to the question of uh, how does science and religion relate, and most of us are doing things that are just frankly more interesting, <laughs> you know, I mean, than these old you know worn out debates. So the question is, is there something wrong with creating more journalism about this topic? Because there's just no doubt that if you, if you have a fellowship, people can apply to it, people get to take time out from their busy life and work in this area, then, yeah, you're going to produce more journalism. But I don't see a problem with that, especially when the people who are producing it get, you know, two weeks with top scholars at Cambridge uh, to learn about different aspects of science and religion. Would you personally advocate that people support the mission of the Templeton Foundation and donate money to them? Hmm. I've never really thought about that, partly because I know that they have money, and so (laughs) (laughs) it's not like they're in the poorhouse. I don't know. I'm I'm agnostic on it. I I mean, I think that there's nothing wrong with what the Templeton Foundation is doing. There are a lot of good things um, the Templeton Foundation is doing. But if I'm personally advocating for people to raise money, uh, I probably am choosing um, one particular mission, and it may not be that one. So, I mean, I've been trying to get That's... people to raise money for things lately, and I guess they're not that. So um... <laughs> you're, you're right. They certainly don't need money. Maybe the question wasn't asked so great. It just seems odd to me that you who write so passionately in Stormworld for the consensus of scientists for human-caused climate change, and, and you're a great critic of the denialists, it just seems odd to me that you're then now affiliating yourself with an organization that dumps hundreds of thousands of dollars into the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, the Acton Institute. I mean, many of these groups are distorting the scientific consensus on global warming. They do fund some organizations that I'm not as happy with. There's certainly that. However, when I made the call with Templeton that this was an okay thing, it was because uh, they had established a lot of credibility with a lot of people that I respect in terms of how they handle the science-religion field. Mm-hmm. And there, I really think uh, that the work that's being supported, not only research being supported, but also journalism programs that are being supported, are really creating a better intellectual dialogue and better information, uh, and that they're doing it in a way where no one is uh, being lobbied to come to any conclusion and no one's being proselytized to. It's an intellectual and it's a journalistic activity, and one that's going to lead to good results and hopefully, you know, just a slightly better world in terms of the kind of information we have out there. So I'm still really comfortable about that. 
Okay, quick commentary. What do we think of what Chris said? I don't know. I, I, I guess speaking honestly, if Templeton offered me $3,000, I'd take it because I need money. <laughs> I, 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 I mean, truthfully, if we're talking, you know, situation ethics, I say I'm going to do this money is going to do a lot more good for me than it will help their cause. It doesn't have to be. He probably wasn't corrupted. I'm sure it doesn't change well, anything sure that he says. But there's the appearance. I just wouldn't want to do it because I wouldn't want to put up with this shit. That is, that is their appearance. <laughs> the shit that we're engaging in right now. Absolutely. For the appearance of impropriety. Yeah. Not even the, whether you or not you actually do something. You should just head that off of the past and you know maybe that yeah. purist. But you should you know you should. What does he need it for? No. I, I think money. I think <laughs> sure. If I fault Mooney at all, I fault him for apologizing for the Templeton too much. Not for working with them for two months. <laughs> I, I think I – think, uh, Two months, we should know. Yeah. I, I Well, and he's right. That and makes, absolutely. That makes a difference. It, it that does. Doesn't, that's different from, you know, he, he's not on their a payroll. big research he's, grant. Yeah. You know, it's – he's he's going to Cambridge to study and I think – And talk with a bunch of other smart people. Uh, and, yeah. You know. I don't believe he deserves to be crucified for that. No. So my, my right. issue is just that he's, he's okay, more defensive of them than I think he should be. Do it on his own dime then if he wants to go to – Cambridge and study with people. And when you asked him about the climate change denial stuff, that was a bit of a kick to the nuts. That's no, that's, that's tricky, perfectly but legitimate. It's, it's, it was totally <laughs> legitimate. And if his thing is global warming is bad, and he's taking money from an institution that funds people that say global warming is not bad, what's not contradictory about that? Yeah, I had this thing where where I was at Grand Valley, where uh, they took it. They just had some recent check written by Richard DeVos for something. Yeah. And Grand Valley was also simultaneously legislating this stuff like anti-hate speech. They wanted to see him all like, uh, you know, you yeah. can't say anything about gays there. That's hate speech. That's contradictory. And, uh, so like I put it in the classroom. Here's like here's I had a couple of slides in the PowerPoint. One of them was you know Richard DeVos giving the money for the new DeVos Center for blah, mm-hmm. and the other one was you know we don't have hate speech. And then I had Richard DeVos's quote from the newspaper: "Homosexuality is an abomination." One of these has got to go. You can't when you take money from people. You you well, but just by taking money from them, are you are, are you agreeing with everything they've ever said and done? I don't think so. His his point was this is one part. What he's involved in is one part of their mission, and it's not at all tied to the, their their other projects. And that's, just because I support Barack Obama in some things does not mean I agree with him. Okay, so it, right, I don't support it, CFI in everything right, if, they do either. If and I, I campaign for if, Barack if CFI Obama, sent money to like the American Nazi Party to do research on <laughs> genetic research, would you think that's okay? Well, well I think we're getting hyperbolic with no, our examples. It, we're here. arguing but a it, principle <laughs> here. You, they don't support everything the Nazis do. But they did some good uh, genetics excellent. research. All right. Well, Boy, I, even our internal discussion generated more heat than light. So I guess what we can see is why this will continue to be a debate. Absolutely. Amongst our own. I look forward I to hearing the comments yeah. here on the on the blog. Although if you want to have a discussion, do it at the forum. My advice to Chris Mooney is pay for your own research and writing. That's what I do. Well, speaking as, as someone impoverished, I, I – uh, understand where he's coming from a bit, although I think he's doing much better than than I am. So, I don't know. Stay poor. <laughs> I'm a cynic. All right. Well, that's all for this week. Uh, if you have any comments, I can't imagine why you would. Uh, questions, challenges, gripes, or suggestions, uh, send them to doubtcast at gmail.com. Uh, if you want to have a discussion, and I think many of you will, please go to doubtcast.forummotion.net. 
that is a much better forum in which to discuss as opposed to just comments on the blog. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time with more of your Skeptical Guide to Religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission.